Father, we thank you once again for the gift of life. We thank you for the opportunity where we can open up your sacred word, speak to us, bring us higher in our spiritual experience. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Some time ago, I remember traveling, and as I was waiting for my delayed flight, I decided just to meander around into the bookstore, and I walked into this one particular bookstore, and I noticed there was a book there that caught my attention. The title of that book was entitled, One Thing. One Thing. But it wasn't really so much the title that caught my attention. It was really the subtitle that captivated my attention. And the subtitle simply read, the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. That's what really caught my attention. You know, and being a, being a result-driven guy, you know, I took the book from the bookshelf, I purchased it, and I began to read it. You know, the fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, we live in an overstimulated society. From the moment we wake up to the moment we sleep, we are bombarded with so much information, text messages, notifications, emails, uh, digital advertisements, and with all of this plethora of information, there's a strong temptation to become so distracted. And so the one thing that I appreciated about this book is that it uses science and research to prove the idea, to prove the thesis, that it is possible to accomplish extraordinary things in your life if you just simply focus on one thing. You can, in, in, in an age where there's so much information, we're bombarded by advertisement notifications. It is, and, and, and therefore there's a temptation to be so diverted in distraction and doing so many things. It is possible to accomplish extraordinary things in your ministry, extraordinary things in your life, if you just simply focus on one thing. And so as I was reading, it's a pretty, it's, it's not a thick book. It's pretty decent. It'll probably take you three to four hours to read all in one sitting. And as I was reading this book on the plane, one of the first bold statements it made that just made me almost uh, fall off my seat. It made this bold declaration on page 44 uh, of this book. It, re it reads, multitasking is a lie. Now that really hit home because I used to boast that I'm a great multitasker. As a matter of fact, I used to put it in my resumes. You know, I thought to myself, what? Multitasking is a lie? You gotta be kidding me. I used to boast that I'm a great multitasker. Now don't get me wrong, multitasking works, but it's not as effective as focusing on one project at a time. Now let me read to you some statistics here. One survey was done back in 2009. A study was found and was put out that 16%, listen to this, 16% of all traffic fatalities and half a million injuries annually is due to multitasking. <laughs> Furthermore, driving and talking takes 40% of your focus from concentrating on driving. This is almost the same as drunk driving. They continued to make a study on certain companies with employees and found that 28% of the day is lost to multitasking. Employees are 28% less productive when they multitask versus doing one project at a time. And don't get me wrong, multitasking works, but it's not as effective as just focusing on one subject, one content matter, one project at a time. Now, let me just illustrate to you this, this, this idea, just so that it's clear. Now, 
by the raising of your hand, how many of you, how many of you, I want to see you raise your, we want to see who you are. How many of you can do this while you're multitasking? <laughs> how many of you can walk across a tightrope with a phone in your hand, texting messages, checking your email, and a comb on the other hand and combing your hair? We want to see who you are. <laughs> Pretty close to impossible, isn't it? Or how many of you, how many of you are willing to fly on a Boeing 747 while the pilot is landing and he's multitasking? <laughs> now, I don't want to be on a plane when the pilot is multitasking as he lands. I want a pilot... When he's landing the plane, he's just focusing on one thing. One thing. As a matter of fact, I have a friend who's a pilot, and he told me, he says, Brother Doug, it's very interesting that as pilots, we are taught and we are told that, that if, you're taking the, if, if, if you're ascending from ground zero to 10,000 feet in the cockpit, pilots are not allowed to talk and do anything but just focusing on their task at hand. From 10,000 feet down to ground zero, as they're landing, those pilots that are in the cockpit, they're not allowed to focus on anything else but that one thing, and that is to land that plane. From ground zero to 10,000 feet. And so, again, friends, multitasking is great, but multitasking is not as effective as focusing on one subject at a time. You know, I want to share with you this quote here. One quote says, if you try to catch two rabbits, you will not catch either one. It's very interesting that when you look back at people who are successful and things that have influence in society today, you can trace back their success and their influence to the fact that they just simply focused on one thing. Just one thing. For example... When you think of Google, what's Google's one thing that they're known for? Searching. When you think of Starbucks, what's the one thing Starbucks is known for? <laughs> Caffeine, yeah, coffee, yeah. When you think of Subway, what's the one thing that Subway is known for? You don't walk into Subway and you see tacos and Big Macs and fried chicken. You see, they're just simply focusing on one thing. And this principle is not only true in the business realm, but it's also true in the sports arena. When you think of Tiger Woods, what's the one sport that comes to your mind? At a very young age, Tiger and his father decided at a very young age that they're just going to focus on one sport and one sport only. They're not going to focus on basketball. They're not going to focus on baseball. They're just going to focus on one sport. And as a result on focusing on one sport, we have one of the most iconic golf players of all time. Simply focusing on one thing. And that's why this proverb here says, if you try to catch two rabbits, you will not catch either one. And yet the, the truth of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, some of us, we have three rabbits. We have four rabbits. We're trying to do this. We're trying to do that. We're trying to catch this rabbit. The fact of the matter is when you're trying to do all of these great things, you'll end up empty-handed. I like this quote that this book brings up. Be like a postage stamp. Stick to one thing until you get there. <laughs> right? Stick to one thing, folks. Just stick to one thing 
until you get there. Don't be chasing these rabbits here and there. Interesting to note that uh, they did a study and they found out what's the one common denominator between successful people and unsuccessful people. And they found that those who find it difficult to be successful all have these, this, this one common trait. And that common trait is simply this. They all have the inability to say no. Those who are always distracted, those who never accomplish great things, do not have the ability to say no. Warren Buffet said the following words, the difference between successful people and very successful people is that successful people say no to almost everything. And those who come short in accomplishing their mission, in accomplishing their goal, all have the inability to say no. They can't say no. Someone asks you to do this, yeah, I'll do it. Someone asks you to do this, yeah, I'll do it. And they find themselves uh, chasing five, six, seven rabbits, but not chasing that one rabbit that really matters. Are you with me, Advent Hope? And so as I put this book down, as I came to the final, as I came to the final page of this book, then my preacher mind started coming up. And I thought to myself, wow, I wonder what the Bible has to say about one thing. I wonder what the Bible has to say about being so distracted, spiritual multitasking to the point where you're so distracted to your own spiritual peril. I wonder what the Bible says, or are there examples of people in the Bible who lost their life and their salvation because simply they couldn't say no? If you have your Bibles with you, come with me to the book of Matthew chapter 6. Matthew, what book are we on? Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. Matthew the 6th chapter and verse 24. And the Bible reads, No one can serve how many masters? Two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve the things of God and the things of the world at the same time and expect to get across to the other side in that tightrope. As a matter of fact, when you connect, this is one whole sermon from Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7, it's all one sermon. And when you connect Matthew chapter 6 with what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13 and 14, he says, he says there, enter in through the narrow gate, the straight gate, the narrow gate. In other words, what Jesus is simply saying, dearly beloved, one cannot walk the narrow road of eternal salvation if they're multitasking. One cannot expect to walk that tightrope of love and obedience and expect to replicate the character of Christ if they're straddling between two worlds. You cannot have it both ways. Either you serve God or you serve mammon, but you cannot have both. One thing, and this concept, this idea is magnified even more in the Old Testament with the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Remember that? Come with me to the book of 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings, you know the story here in Mount Carmel. Ahab calls all of Israel and the false prophets for a showdown on Mount Carmel. And here in the book of 1 Kings chapter 18, we see that clarion call for revival. 
Elijah makes that final sermon appeal for revival. He says here in verse 21, I wish I was there to listen to that sermon by, by Elijah. He says here in verse 21, And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And the people of God answered not a word. In other words, Elijah is simply saying, Friends, there can be no personal revival in your life if you're straddling between two worlds. Just one thing. If God be God, serve him. But if Baal be Baal, then serve him. Jesus even touches on this in the book of Revelation when he talks to the Laodicean church. He says, look, I'd prefer you to be one thing. I'd prefer you to be hot or I'd prefer you to be cold. But if you're both, I will spew you out of my mouth. One thing. Which one is it, folks? Either you serve God or you serve mammon. Either you serve ba or you serve Baal or you serve God. You're either hot or you're either cold. But for the sake of your own salvation, please don't be both. Don't be both. I remember some time ago, I was uh, reading this, uh, I was given this journal, this business journal, and it brought out this interesting idea, this case, uh, this case scenario about Continental Airlines. Now, Back in the early 1990s, uh, Continental Airlines was facing a, a, um, an issue with their profits. They noticed that their profits were going down is because some of the airlines at that time were offering cheaper tickets. And one of their competitors that was uh, very, very competitive towards Continental Airlines was an airline called uh, Southwest Airlines. How many have heard of Southwest Airlines? Yeah. Continental Airlines was a full-service airline. Southwest Airlines is a simple airline. Okay, uh, you just go in, you just grab your seat, you know, whereas uh, uh, Continental Airlines, was, there's a little bit more service. And so they noticed that they wanted to take on Southwest Airlines on certain point-to-point -point routes. And in order to take on Southwest Airlines, they created this sub-airline called Continental Light. Now, if you were traveling back in the early 1990s, especially from 1992 to 1995, you probably have heard of Continental Light. Continental Light survived only two years. Two years later, Continental Light folded because it had accumulated over $300 million in debt. They couldn't compete. And so in the Harvard Business Review, where I read this, uh, the experts began to use this as a model. And they said, well, the position that Continental Airlines was using, the method in the business world, is a method called straddling. What word did I say? Straddling. Now, the definition of straddling is simply this. It's when a company decides to reap the same profit and benefits of another company without making any changes to its current structure. In other words, we want to be like Southwest Airlines, but we like our ways. We won't make any changes to our current structure. So they wanted to straddle. They wanted, the, they wanted the profits of Southwest Airlines. They wanted the benefits of Southwest Airlines, but they couldn't compete without making any changes to their current structure. And so the Harvard Business Review brings out the point that, that uh, Continental Airlines could not, could not be both. There had to be now we use another word here, 
there had to be, in order for them to succeed, there had to be trade-offs. What word did I say? Trade-offs. What's a trade-off? The simplest definition of a trade-off is simply this. The more of one thing necessitates the less of another. That's a trade-off. The more of one thing necessitates the less of another. But you cannot have both. If you want to be like some, if you want to take on another company, there must, there must be some trade-offs to your current structure. And because Continental Airlines refused to make any changes to their current structure, their business was unsustainable. When I think about this, ladies and gentlemen, I think about what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. If you want to be like me, if you want to take on the character of Christ, there must be some personal trade-offs in your life. Either you're more like Jesus and less like the world, or you're more like the world and less like Jesus, but you cannot have both. If you want to reflect the character of Christ, and if you want to be more and more like him, there must be some personal trade-offs in your life that you're willing to submit and give to him. One thing. What is that one thing that hinders you from having that relationship with Jesus. As I continue searching in the Bible, the compound word one thing is mentioned 16 times in Scripture. 16 times. Just the word one thing, one thing, one thing. Now, time does not suffice me to go through every single passage, but I want to share with you a few. The first time you see one thing in the Bible, this compound word one and thing put together in the English version, is found in Joshua chapter 23, verse 14. And behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. This is Joshua. He's preaching a sermon to the children of Israel. That's the context here. And behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not what, friends? One thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spake concerning you. All are come to pass unto you, and not one thing has failed thereof. Now, let me give you the context here. Now, the children of Israel were contemplating moving away from the umbrella of protection of God. The umbrella of protection of Jehovah, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And they were contemplating turning their backs on God. And so, and so Joshua had to preach this sermon. And he simply says, look, if you're contemplating turning your back on God, just remember this one thing. God has not failed you in one thing. He's been faithful in keeping all of his promises. That's the sermon. If you're thinking of turning your back on God and being unfaithful to God, just remember, God has been faithful to you. He's never let you down. One thing, he's never let you down in any one thing. That's the first time we see the word compounds word one thing in the Bible. Joshua chapter 23 verse 14. Then, of course, we read here in Psalms chapter 27 and verse 4. This is David here. The context here is David isn't hiding from this maniac king. Uh, and then the, the, the sanctuary wasn't built at that time. And he says, one thing have I desired of the Lord. That will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Here David says, look. Despite my life being at risk, there's only one thing I wish at this time. Now, David could have said anything. David could have said, look, I just wish that there will be some protection from this maniac king. But he simply says, there's just one thing. I wish to behold the sanctuary of God. 
For in the sanctuary of God are these beautiful truths. Can we say that today as, as uh, Adventists? I behold just one thing, that I understand what Jesus is doing for me in the most holy place right now. And my role to play during this antitypical day of atonement. That's the one thing that was on the heart of King David. Furthermore, in Mark chapter 10 and verse 21, again, we see the words one thing. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. Now you remember here the story is uh, here given is to the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler was faithful in 99% of the things, but he was lacking in one thing. You know what that tells me, friends? That tells me that there are many folk in the church who could be faithful and obedient to 99% of God's 10 commandments, but they're lacking in that one thing. God doesn't want 99% of your heart. God wants all of your heart. And the rich young ruler is a symbol of many in God's end time church that will be lost because they were faithful in the 99, but they still held on and cherished this one sin. This one sin. Yes, they're probably eating the right fruits. Yes, they're probably returning their tithes and their offering. Yes, they were probably keeping the Sabbath holy, but they still held on to that one idol of sin. One thing, one thing thou lackest. Then again, the Bible tells us in the book of Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this what, friends? This one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, here, dearly beloved, the Bible tells us that Paul could move forward in life because he only had one thing. He was forgetting the past. Did not hold any grudges, did not hold anything against any person. He could move forward in that one thing. If you have your Bibles with you, come with me to the book of Revelation chapter 13. Let me show you something found now. Our Sabbath school study is on Revelation chapter 13. Oh, sorry, in the, on the book of Revelation. But I want to show you something in the book of Revelation that ties into what we're saying, this one thing. In the book of Revelation chapter 13, it talks about a beast. A what, friends? A beast. Now, the Bible tells us in the book of Daniel chapter 7, that a beast in Bible prophecy symbolizes a, a nation, a kingdom, a political power. Now verse 1 says here, Then I saw, then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. So the Bible tells us here that John stands and he sees this Great big beast, seven heads and ten horns. Now, if you're a faithful Seventh-day Adventist, you will know that this religious political power is still in existence today. Now, notice what this religious political power does. The Bible says here in verse 2, Now the beast was like unto a leopard, his feet was like to the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him power, and his throne, and great authority. Then the Bible says in verse 3, and I saw one of his heads 
as it was what, friends? It was wounded to death. Now, we know from Bible prophecy, the Bible tells us it was in the year 1798 that this religious, this religious political power, its political influence was taken away from it. And it was wounded at that very time. In fulfillment of, the, of, of Daniel chapters, uh, in the book of Daniel, and also in the book of Revelation. Then the Bible tells us that this religious political power will regain its political influence. The Bible says that the wound will be healed. And once this wound is healed, the Bible furthermore predicts that the time will come when the whole world will wonder after this beast. And the Bible furthermore predicts that the time is coming very soon when this religious political power will cause a universal law to be pronounced in the whole entire world. And every person on the face of this planet will be given a decision. The Bible says they will either say no to this law or either they will say yes. Where will you stand on that great day when that religious persecution occurs? Notice what Ellen White says concerning this religious political power in Revelation chapter 13. She says here, those who would not receive the mark of the beast, the what, friends? The mark of the beast and his image, when the decree goes forth, must have decision now to say nay. Now, we don't go around using the word nay today, but what, for today's vernacular, what's nay? No. Here she says, those who would not receive the mark of the beast, they must make a decision now, to say no. In other words, if you cannot say no now to these little temptations in life, what makes you think you can say no when that law is being passed? You must make a decision every moment of the day to say no now. This prepares you for that great day when that law will be passed. Are you with me, Advent Hope? And there are many examples in the Bible of people who lost their salvation, who lost their life simply because they had the inability to say no. Let me give you a few examples. First example that comes to my mind of a man that couldn't say no was a man by the name of Aaron. You remember Aaron? When Moses went up to receive the Ten Commandments, and the Bible says that Aaron was left back with the people. And the Bible says that the people wanted to establish a, a religious system based on their, on their senses rather than the word of God. And the Bible says that they ended up worshiping, worshiping this golden calf. You know, Ellen White says that, that the evil that happened in that time could have been checked if Aaron just simply said no. Let me read it to you. Patriarchs and Prophets. Page 323. If Aaron had courage to stand for right, irrespective of consequences, he could have prevented the apostasy. We need more Aaron's in our church today. If Aaron 
had had courage to stand for the right, irrespective of consequences, he would have prevented the apostasy. Think about this, dear friends. If Aaron just simply said, no, we're not doing this. No, we're not allowing this kind of worship. No, we're not allowing this wilderness into our church. We would have a different story in the book of Exodus or in the book of Genesis or in the Old Testament. If he just simply said, no. Then she goes on to say, if he had unswervely maintained his own allegiance to God, if he had cited the people to the perils of Sinai and had reminded them of their solemn covenant with God to obey his law, the evil would have been checked. Many souls will be lost at the end of time simply because of their inability to say no to the things of this world. There's another man that comes to my mind who couldn't say no. His name was Pilate. Remember Pilate? When he had to make that decision with King Jesus? As a matter of fact, I was just reading this the other day. Come with me to the book of Acts chapter 3. Let me show you something about Pilate. Acts chapter 3. Acts, what chapter are we on? Acts chapter 3. And I believe it's verse 13. Notice here about Pilate. Acts chapter 3 and verse 13. Here it reads, And the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied, and the Bible says here, uh, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of who, friends? Of Pilate. Now notice this last part. When he was determined to let him go. Who's that him referring to? Jesus. Jesus. Pilate wanted to let Jesus go. He was determined. He had, it as, he had a sincere heart. He really did not want to do anything of Jesus. But he couldn't say no. Pilate. The man who had the inability, who had the inability to say no. Like Aaron like many of the people in the last days, that will be lost simply because they cannot say no now to the things of this world. There's a third and the final man that comes to my mind who couldn't say no. His name was Samson. Remember Samson? Samson couldn't say no to the vices of this world. Samson couldn't say no to the ungodly associations of this world. And look how he ended up. How about you, my dear friends? Are you willing to compromise your faith? Are you willing to say no now to these little things? When I was putting this sermon together, I was thinking to myself, what is the one thing? What is the one thing that Satan fears the most? Going along the lines of theme, or the, the, going along the theme of, of one thing, what's the one thing? What's the one thing that Satan fears the most? Because the one thing that Satan fears the most is most likely the one thing that God wants us to be faithful in. So then I began reading the Bible, reading the Spirit of Prophecy. Then I came across this quote. Listen to this. I want to end off with this powerful quote. The one thing that Satan is fearful of the most. Here Ellen White says. There is nothing 
that Satan fears so much is that the people of God shall what? Clear the way. Clear the way. Now, what way is she referring to? Now, she's not talking about paving a road. She's talking about the way of your heart. There is nothing that Satan fears so much as that the people of God shall clear the way. Why? Why is Satan so, so fearful about this one thing? This one thing about clearing the way of God? Well, notice what she continues to say. There is nothing that Satan fears so much as that the people of God shall clear the way by removing every hindrance so that the Lord God can pour out His Spirit upon a languishing church and an impenitent congregation. Then she continues to say, when the way is prepared. What way? The way of our hearts. When the heart is empty, the heart is, is, is prepared for the Holy Spirit. When the way is prepared for the Spirit of God, what will happen? Blessings, blessings will come. Conditional. The blessings won't fall unless the way of the heart is cleared. Now the context here, what, what blessings is she referring to here? The blessing she's referring to here is the blessing of the latter rain. The blessing of the outpouring of the latter rain. Now notice here, dear friends, there is nothing that Satan fears so much as that when the people of God, when their heart is cleared, every sin is removed. Then the blessing, the latter rain, will fall. Now follow me. Follow me, dear friends. We all know this chronological order in eschatology, time prophecy. Now, now, when the latter rain falls, the latter rain falls under the condition that God's people clear the way. When the latter rain falls, it gives you and I power to proclaim the loud cry. You cannot have the loud cry without the latter rain. And you cannot have the latter rain if there's still stuff in your life that's hindering your relationship between you and God. And when the latter rain, the loud cry is proclaimed, this is what we need to proclaim the everlasting gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Yes, technology is great. Satellite is good. Facebook, Twitter, all of these things. But we need the raw power of the unction of the Holy Spirit. That's the loud cry. And when the gospel is preached to the whole entire world, Everyone will have to make a decision. Either they follow the lamb or they follow the beast. And when they make that decision, then the words are said in the book of Revelation chapter 22, let the righteous be righteous still and let the holy be holy still. The close of probation can only occur when the, when, when the three angels' message is proclaimed to the entire world. But we have no power in and of ourselves to proclaim the three angels' message. We need the loud cry, but we have no power in and of ourselves for the loud cry. We need the latter rain. But in order for us to have the latter rain, self must be emptied. And when the righteous are righteous still, and the wicked are wicked still, and the holy is holy still, then we know, the Bible tells us, the second coming of Jesus occurs. Then the plagues fall, the 144,000 reflect the character of Christ. Then the plagues, uh, the plagues fall, and then the second coming of Jesus. What happens after the second coming of Jesus? The Bible tells us the righteous go to heaven and spend a thousand years. Meanwhile, the wicked are destroyed here on planet earth. At the end of the 1,000 years, what happens, friends? The new city of Jerusalem descends from heaven. 
The Bible tells us that Satan is loosed for a short period of time, thinking that he can deceive Gog and Magog, thinking he can deceive the whole entire world. He's successful in thinking and in, in getting people to, to overcome the new city of Jerusalem. Then the Bible says that just when they're about to climax of the battle of Armageddon, fire comes down from heaven and annihilates and destroys sin and sinners and Satan. But it begins by clearing the way. I'm convinced, and I believe with all my heart, that God is not waiting for another tsunami to occur. God is not waiting for another pope in the Vatican. God is not waiting for another president in the White House. God is not waiting for another plane to drop from the sky in the middle of nowhere. God is not waiting for another war. God is waiting for a people that will clear the way. God is waiting for a people that will simply empty self. Because once self is cleared and there's nothing between my Lord and my Savior, then the Holy Spirit will fall. Now, yes, I keep up to date what's going on in the Vatican. I keep up to date what's going on in the White House. I keep up to date. But what use is it if you have all the knowledge of prophecies, but yet you still have pride in your heart? God is not waiting for another sign. God is waiting for a people that will simply clear the way. That one thing. And once they clear the way, the blessings will fall. A loud cry will go forth. Jesus is waiting for you and I to totally surrender our hearts to him. Do you want to be part of that people, Advent Hope? So here's my final appeal. Here's my final challenge to you all tonight before we leave. What is your one thing? What is the one thing in your heart, that the Holy Spirit is telling you that stands between you and a loving Savior? Is it your career? Is it your family? Is it pride? Is it unforgiveness? Is it lying? Is it cheating? Is it gossiping? What is that one thing that you still cherish in your heart that hinders you from receiving the outpouring of the latter rain? I'm not asking you to tell me. That's just between you and God. Ask yourself today. Ask yourself this week. What is the one thing? I may be faithful in 99% of these things, but there's this one sin that I'm still holding on to. This one idol I'm still cherishing. That's what I need to remove. The one thing that's holding me from receiving the blessings from God. Once the Holy Spirit has shown to you that one thing that stands between you and a loving Savior... My final question is simply this. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? I hope that we can come to the foot of the cross and bring that one thing to our loving Savior. I praise God we have an intercessor in the heavenly sanctuary above who's willing to cleanse us from that one thing that stands between us and him. Can you say amen?
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you, dear Lord. It is our prayer and our desire that there be nothing between our Lord and our Savior. If there's one thing, dear Father, that's hindering us from having the relationship with you, please bring it to the front of our minds that we, that you, through your power, that you may remove it, that we may be more and more like Jesus. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.